Hello, hello, Steve Dunn Podcast. I am joined today by Jay Ward. Jay is a poet and spoken word artist. He is the 2019 Individual World Poetry Slam champion, and he's currently serving as the Poet Laureate of the City of Charlotte. Jay is part of a thriving spoken word community in Charlotte. He is one of the co-hosts of the Poet Up podcast. He's an author of multiple books, and he's super fun to talk to about all kinds of things. I'm so happy to have gotten to know Jay, and I'm so pleased to welcome him today on the Steve Dunn Podcast. So Rich Square is a very small town, population less than a thousand, um, a lot of farmland. Um, In the county, it is the county seat and it's the biggest town in the county, but you know, a lot of that is farmland. Uh, so growing up there, I described it as growing up in the chemtrails of segregation. Uh, so when I grew up, I mean, it wasn't segregated, but you, you could see the effect of segregation because all of the, uh, the white folk lived in one part of the town and all the black folk kind of lived in the other part of the town. Uh, but there's only one school cause it wasn't big enough for, you know, more than a school. Um, so, but there were separate churches. It was very much a simple way of life. I didn't grow up with city water or access to cable because I was too far out. I was, I was rural. I didn't grow up riding bikes around anywhere except my driveway because all my friends lived further into town and I wasn't going to drive that far. So if you walked, you were walking past dogs barking, you were walking, you know, right past people's yards, with no sidewalk. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, playing in the woods in the forest behind the house. Uh, you know, I would walk one or two miles back in the woods every day. Um, and the only thing we ever worried about was getting ticks. You know, I would just yeah. have to check for ticks after. You playing by yourself, or did yeah? You, do you have any siblings? I have uh, one older brother. Uh, he's five years older. So when we were younger, we did a lot together. But once he got close to preteen years, I was an afterthought. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we had neighbors uh, that were close to my age and close to his age. So sometimes we we would play with them. But in general, on a summer day, I would just I would just go out, uh, play in the yard, or or walk back into the into the woods and just just see what was there hey, by yourself your kid you don't have you're not carrying around a bunch of technology no. uh, you don't have a whole lot even coming to your house no I imagine it gave you uh, a real opportunity to explore your imagination and to use your mind uh, yeah. in play so that's exactly how I look at it now how I looked at it then <laughs> as a child I was like man this is oppressive I can't I don't have I don't have all the stuff that other people have and uh, I can't you know, I just have to go outside, but yeah, I was, yeah. Imagination all day, you know, and I, I bought a lot of comic books. I read a lot of comic books. What were your, uh, earliest favorites? Uh, Spider-Man, Iron Man, West coast Avengers. You still have him? I do, but they're in horrible shape. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. cause you read them. Cause I read them. Yeah. Every Saturday we went to the video store, which, you know, they don't have anymore, but we would pick up three or four videos every Saturday and watch movies. And the other thing we would do on Saturdays is go to the library and I would, especially during the summer, I would probably get 10 books every yeah. week Yeah, because I would burn through the, I would burn through those books um, like pretty quick. So, but that allowed my mind to be more active. It allowed me to, even though I wasn't, I wasn't visiting anywhere. I, it was very rare that I left uh, the town, you know, but in my mind I was visiting a lot of places and I was, getting access to a lot of different culture that way. So when we moved from New York, you know, my brother was five years older than me and we were, we were living upstate and our next door neighbor was a huge Kiss fan. My brother would go over to their house and listen to Kiss all the time. So when we moved, <clears throat> when we moved down, I was only five years old. I'm talking to my friends at school in kindergarten and first grade. I'm talking about Kiss and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so then I started exchanging music with them. I start listening to them. At this time, my brother starts also listening to hip hop. His friends in New York, because this is how it worked back then, his friends in New York were sending him the latest songs because right. they weren't on the radio where we were. Yeah, tapes, Sen- tapes. Like cassette tapes. Yeah. yeah, sending him the tapes of the latest songs. So I'm hearing that. And at the same time, if everybody's listening to, to VH1 and MTV, and now all of a sudden it's not just pop and rock but it's also hip-hop and it's also country and it's also all these other things um my musical taste became super super 
wide. Yeah. Especially when I was like a preteen to teen, which which includes things like uh, country and yeah and rock, uh, alternative rock. It includes a lot of things. I, I will say I never really went back to Kiss. Like heavy metal, I never really got back into. But yeah. but everything else, um, I'm I'm just a fan of of most genres. You know, I am too. And what broadened my horizon in that way was working at a record store. Hmm. Because uh, when I was in high school, I worked at a Camelot Music uh, here in Camelot, Charlotte, yeah. down on 51. And we were required, to, we had a little bit of discretion. There was a, a like a six disc CD changer. And I think each person that was working could maybe pick one. And then there were a few that were required to be played all the time as like whatever the hits were at the time. And so through that, um, I just was forced to listen to a lot of different kinds of music, stuff that I would have dismissed out of hand. Like, And there's a couple albums that I still, to this day, just love and respect so much that I never would have given a second thought if it had just been up to me as a kid. And like, um, there's a George Michael record, Listen Without Prejudice. George mm. Michael, Listen yeah. Without Prejudice, great album. Uh, Garth Brooks, No Fences is an absolutely killer album. And it took me months before of, of having it in the background before I it just seeped in. You know what yeah. I mean? I just recognized how great it was. But I credit that experience uh, to opening my mind uh, to different kinds of music. And frankly, from that, you know, once I figured that out and became conscious of that, like once I realized that there's a lot of different things that can be really cool, it opened my mind to all kinds of other things, you know, certainly, uh, in terms of art uh, yeah. and performance, um, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll roll the dice on just about anything, <laughs> um, but you're a kid. Okay. You're a kid. You are in rich square, North Carolina. Along the way, you discover a love of words and you discover that you have a gift for words. How did that happen? I think part of that was how much I was reading. Um, Part of it was I had convinced myself in like third grade that I would become a comedian. So I would try to write and structure jokes. I would try to write and structure short stories because of how much sci-fi I was reading. Um, and another big thing was my um, my English teacher in fifth and sixth grade, Miss Tudors, um, she would read to us, if not every day, at least a few times a week. And she would read from you know, a young adult novel like Where the Fern, Red Fern Grows or, or anything like that of Mice and Men. Um, and hearing it out loud was a different experience because when I read it, I was looking to create pictures in my head, you know, but when I heard somebody else read it out loud, um, it, it became a, a slightly different experience. And that meant that the, the vocal inflections mattered speeding up and slowing down with the pace was, it, it all mattered. It, it kind of impacted how the story was perceived and Miss Tudors was really good at that. So um, that became like one of my favorite things in school and the idea that I could do that. And all of this at the same time was my love for hip hop was growing and hip hop was still young at the time. I also convinced myself I was gonna be a rapper too. So, so I'm writing raps, I'm writing jokes, I'm writing short stories. And I'm also understanding or starting to understand um, how vocalizations and how uh, sounds play into that. Um, so I was I also learned from Miss Tudors about the Harlem Renaissance and about um, at that time, the Harlem Renaissance that only meant Langston Hughes at that time, like at, at, at that age and at, at that level of, of class work, Harlem Renaissance just meant Langston Hughes. Um, but the key thing was Langston Hughes took jazz rhythms and, and in, that influenced his work and his cadences. I was too young to understood to understand how the, you know what that meant, like how do you do that and what does that mean? But the fact that he did immediately made me think about about hip hop and, and how that can be incorporated into the idea that he did it. The idea that that's what this is was really intriguing to me. Yeah, yeah, and I and I've heard um, like a, a tape recording of um, Langston Hughes reading his own work. Uh, some of that's on YouTube. You know, you can find him reading his own work and it's not like it's not like a spoken word performance. It's not like he's reading it and it's, you know, it has this up and down, yeah. you know, type of feel to it. Uh, I think it's just the rhythm, no matter how you read it, is still influenced by that. Ta -ta 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 -ta, right. You know, so it's not that it had a um, like a stereotypical spoken word cadence to it. It's just that 
those rhythms being influenced that way makes me then wonder because I because I do this with any kind of art form anything I ingest artistically I am constantly asking myself the question how did they do that how could I do that what would this mean in a poem <laughs> right if I'm watching a movie I'm saying "Ooh, this part right here I don't know why it's my favorite part but it's my favorite part and it made me feel this way here what would that look like on paper what would that look like on stage you know, I'm constantly asking myself questions about what the artist did and how I could recreate it in a different way. Okay, there's so much going on with what you do, and I think it would I'd like to break it down a little bit, right? So generally, uh, I think what we're talking about is spoken word and poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a tradition that goes back as long as humankind has existed. Right? I mean, we're, yeah. we're talking about the stories that people tell each other forever, mm-hmm. right? Man, I, I really um, appreciate this nod to history uh, and, and how this started. Um, when you go back to the Iliad and Homer and, and those things, these epic poems, you know, they traveled around um, and recited these from memory. Um, and part of this was entertainment, but part of it was cataloging Um, history and kind of canonizing uh, the things from an entire culture and the easiest way to remember something you know is if it rhymes or if there's like these these metaphor and these high lyric images those things are easier to remember it's more impactful to the audience but also it's also easier easier for the performer to remember Uh, if you go to the griots of west africa they traveled around and and it was not just used for entertainment it was used for history it was for you know cataloging this culture and taking it from village to village uh, and you would sit at the feet of the griot and listen to this but this also included music it was music and it was poetry and it was performance and it was uh, a way to catalog all these things Uh, poetry of course was a much uh, larger part of society at one time Uh, and the french i believe had a um, i don't remember what it was called but they, they, poets would battle much like battle rappers battle today. Like they would insult each other in, in verse and in poem and they would go back and forth with this thing. Uh, and all of that pushed them to create new forms. The sonnet started from uh, a canto, which was part of a song. And it evolved and it evolved and people started pushing it and pushing it until it became what we recognize as, as a, um, a Petrarchan sonnet or a Shakespearean sonnet. Uh, it's pushed and it's pushed. That's what that's what poets do. That's what artists do. So when we when we talk about what I do, I try to acknowledge all that history and I try to push and see what can I do that's new. If someone has already done a poem about the topic that I'm going to do, which is 99 percent the case, because what can we say that's new? We just we recycle things and try to say them in new ways, but we can't really say a thing that's new. But how can I twist? How can I make a twist on it? How can I improve it? Um, how can I steal like an artist? One thing. So I, I went to um, to Callaloo, which is a creative writing workshop that was um, facilitated by Greg Pardlow and Vibe Francis. And I was in a workshop with Greg Pardlow. And at the beginning of the workshop, he's talking to, to everybody in our cohort. And he says, how are you going to add to the great conversation? The great conversation being all of the poets and all of the artists that have come before you there there's a conversation that's still happening and it's ancient it's all these artists and poets talking to each other this poem is in conversation with this one this artist is in conversation with this one that it's all part of this great conversation and what are you going to add to that conversation will you even be a part of it so i i really am conscious of that a lot what is my work in communication with what artist am I in communication with? Uh, what my individual poems, what poems are they in conversation with through the historical canon, right? Am I doing something new to the extent that new is even a possibility? When you talk about the, the epic poets who used to, and the storytellers who used to travel the land, that, that was, and at that time, for most of human history, the common culture, uh, the way that people understood themselves and the past and their place in the world and it seems to me as though those themes understanding of ourselves and the past and our place in the world is it's a thread I think that runs through your work and I wonder if you see it that way 
there's something that we all draw from and there's this is what makes poetry so impactful as an art form we read a poet or we hear a poet and they describe something in a way that we never would have thought of before and even though they are speaking to their very own unique experience and maybe their experience differs from ours slightly but there's that one kernel in there that so well describes what we have thought what we have gone through and and in the same way that writing that poem helped the poet uh, in a cathartic way get through a moment. There's, there's an experience that as a reader or as an audience member, you have that same moment of catharsis. You have that same moment of, wow, somebody else felt this way. And I didn't even know how to put that in words. And, and listening to them or reading this has, has somehow made me a better version of myself, even if it's in an infinitesimal way, which is which is why art itself is so important. Through your work, you're illuminating these universal human experiences, or you're illuminating experiences uh, of others to an audience who hasn't had those experiences. Meanwhile, though, there's this performative aspect, at least to the part that you do on stage, uh, and there's there's uh, from a nuts and bolts perspective, there's some there's some razzmatazz and some tricks that you can use. You talked yeah. about the stereotypical cadence. There's uh, ebbing and flowing. There's tempo. There's volume. There's articulation. There's repeti- There's a lot of repetition in mm-hmm. what you do. I wonder if um, if you could talk me through like some of your. Fr- I don't I don't want to call them tricks, but like you know <laughs> just like the t- the tools that yeah. you use to make it. Uh, big and, and, and impactful. Yeah. Um, let's see. So, so, I mean, I, I write the poem first. I, I don't do a lot of tricks per se in the poem, although, uh, you know, repetition certainly is, is one that, um, that kind of helps add that emphatic power when you, when you hear something, you know, repeated as you're writing it though, are you thinking about how it's going to sound or is it truly a separate exercise? It is a, it's very gray. It's very mingled. I would love to say that I don't consider that, but it's impossible. Even if, even if you're writing something that you think is just going to be published, it's, it's almost impossible to not consider the audience. Why would you love to say that you don't consider it? Because from a, from a purity standpoint, I would love to completely write the poem for me and in the moment. Especially if you're writing something personal, you're, you're always going to you're going to you're going to couch your words a little bit and you're going to try to make yourself out to be a little bit better. Yeah. And, and, and so you have to you have to you have to push those ideas out and give and give the raw, even if even if the raw means that you're not painting yourself in the best light. Well, all right. So there's a lot going on here. This part of it is uh, being authentic and telling the truth. If you're if you're thinking too much about the audience, whether that audience is a reader or whether that audience is literally somebody watching you. If you consider that too much, then it's going to make you either rely on the tricks to try to get them to to like you as opposed to getting the work to move them. Um, or it's going to make you not write the thing that's hard to write. If, if you if you're if you're too concerned about who's going to read it and you're talking about a very sensitive memory of yours with your parents. Right. And your siblings are going to hear this at some point you have to ask yourself, Oh man, can I say this? I was thinking more of the, um, the sound and the rhythm and the cadence and the, oh. the rising and the falling and the, you I, know, whether, the, whether you have that in mind no, when some, you're writing. No, some, sometimes, um, sometimes it does, especially if it's repetition or if it's, you know, something emphatic. Right. But for the most part, I will, I will write the poem and I will revise it into the ground. I, well, I was going to ask you I, if you're ever done. Is it, is, do you get to a point where it's done, done, done? Like no, my, so <laughs> now you publish books. All right. Yeah. You, you got two, two books yeah. <laughs> so far. Right. But so they're out there in some way. And I'm still, I, I'm still, you're still tinkering with them. Right. I still tinker with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my, um, my friends, my friends laugh at me all the time Yeah, because I'll have a poem that, you know, just is amazingly received performance wise. And, you know, three months later they hear it and they're like, what, why did you change that? Right. Because I found a better way. Yeah. And if I find a better way, I'm going to, I'm going to change it. Yeah. 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 All right. This seems like a good moment to do a poem. 
Do you okay. want, do you want to do the gentrification one? Sure. All right. In the beginning was the word. And the word was amen. And amen begat paradise. And paradise begat a flaming sword, begat eviction, begat you don't belong here, begat redlining, begat you don't belong here either, begat give us this land back, begat urban renewal, begat my neighbor's got a deal on a house I can't afford anymore. Brook Hill Village is one of the last areas of affordable housing left in Charlotte. Its tenants are barely holding on to a neighborhood South Enders are desperately seeking to revitalize. Picture a house, single story, three adults, two children, 700 square feet, shotgun style. Shotgun style means if you open the front door and the back door, a bullet would go right through the house without touching anything. Except here, the bullet is a minimum wage paycheck. The bullet says to the shotgun, they laid off and I'm already fired. The shotgun says to the banker, yeah, that's the money shot. The banker says to the investor, don't fail me now, I got rent, baby. The investor says to the city council, don't fail me now, I got rent, baby. The baby says, why, 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 I'm a baby. But here's the point. The baby plays with blocks too. They all play with blocks. The gentrified block, the only block that can't milli rock. Block ain't hot. Block is got. Block don't want you to live here because it decreases the value, but they want you to shop here to increase the value. The block don't want you, but it wants you. Brooklyn, a neighborhood right here in Charlotte, was once a branch of America's Black Wall Street. Black doctors, lawyers, business owners, until the city wanted the land back. 1,500 buildings torn down, 1,000 families displaced, gone. One of the only buildings remaining today is Brooklyn Grace Church, amen? The block is guarded like a flaming sword, like a word from a banker. Says things like, happy are the poor, but really it's happy are the banks, amen? Since they shall inherit the land. If it's happy are the poor, when does the house give way to the Starbucks? When does the child give way to the pipeline? When does your grandma have to move clear across town just to make way for the new Kroger? You know, I took a walk through the arts district. I mean, this was after they raised the rent, so the artists had to find a new place to live. And I'm sitting at this bar. They're playing underground hip-hop music. There's basketball players painted on the wall. And I walk past a karaoke party where college kids are singing the words to Kanye's Gold Digger, except they only know the words to the chorus. She ain't messing with no broke Nick. And you know what I realized? Um, some folk love to be surrounded by black and brown culture, but not necessarily by black or brown people. Let the church say amen. But here's the point. Picture your city in a time lapse. Art on Central, sax blaring on Davidson, barbershop, hole in the wall, uh, barbecue spot, your cousin's house, gone. Where Brooklyn at? Where Brooklyn at? Gone. Like an amen. Like a neighborhood of ghosts. But here's the point. What if your neighborhood says to the bullet, no. And the bullet says to the shotgun, no. And the shotgun says to the banker, to the investor, to the city council, this is my block. We will not allow another Noda, Greenville, Biddleville, Paradise. The word says no. The word says, ain't you the paradise? And ain't you Ain't you been resurrected before? Ain't you God's children? Ain't this black and brown gonna last forever, forever, ever, forever, ever? Yes. And ain't this poem just a prayer? In the beginning was the word. And the word was amen. Bravo. What I hear there, there's a lot there. Uh, there's a version of that poem posted on your website. Uh, on, it's on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And it is almost exactly what you just said, but not exactly. Not exactly. Yeah, no. there are. So as we were talking about, like it's never quite done, right? There yeah. are some significant changes. And um, but in terms of uh, repetition, amen, it starts out with amen. It ends with amen. And there's amens throughout, right? And it, there's a few things that leapt out at me uh, with this one. Um, one is that there's uh, aspects of it that seem very conversational. Like it seems like you're telling a story, but it's definitely not you just telling a story like like we're talking to each other right now. We're yeah. just coming straight off the top of our heads. Like this is a poem that you have written that you just performed, right? Um, and so how do you think about that? And not, they're not all that way. Some of them are a lot more... Um, structured like in what we would what we've been calling the stereotypical yeah. spoken word cadence yeah. right how do you see this one as uh, being like and different from some of those others um I, I i try to look at every performance poem individually and once it's written which is why i said you know for me the, the words come first once it's written then i try to figure out the best way to convey it um and for me i always look at 
the medium of performance poetry? Because what you mentioned before about like, there's things on page that don't necessarily convey to the stage and, right. and vice versa. Right. So there's things you can do on the page and I'm always thinking, what's the best way this can live on the page? On the stage, I ask the same question. What's the best way that this can live? And for a person today, and, and especially in a media-driven world, for a person today to sit through three minutes of anything, um, it can't be monotone. It can't be dry. It right. can't be. So I'm always looking at ways that I can vary the cadence, ways that I can vary the, the speaking style, uh, and, and what breaking the fourth wall looks like. So if I'm doing a poem and all of a sudden I have an aside, mentally, that makes you wake up a little bit. It's the same as like, if, if there's a room of us talking, you might zone a little bit. But then if I turn to you and say something specifically to you, right. you have to perk up. And I'm looking at everybody in the audience and I'm saying, how, what is the way that I can get the most people involved in this? And for me, it's, it's sometimes having several conversations at once. And sometimes it's having uh, very, what seems like much more intimate conversations. So it really is what the, what the poem is telling me is the best way for it to be conveyed. How does it look on the page? Is, or is this one that you've published? Um, I was, okay. Yeah. So I don't, um, there are, I know poets. So <laughs> I know poets who can perform the poems the way they write them and also publish them the same way. Right. I'm not one of those. Yeah. I'm, I very much go for, if it's going to be a page poem, I am asking every question about how this looks, what the enjambments are, like what is the best way for this to live on a page with somebody who can reread it, who, someone who's visually taking note of, of the shape of this and what, you know, what emotions that can push. But when I'm doing a, a performance piece, I understand that there's other things that don't convey to, this, to the page. Um, I, this poem, I wouldn't, I wouldn't publish this poem on page because I don't think there's a way to do it the way I've written it. I, I know that on stage, it's not just, it's the fact that they can see you visually. So everything that's happening visually is affecting how they receive the poem. That's right. Well, we and, should, we should say you're also moving your arms. You're, yeah. you're doing a little bit of choreography with this thing yeah. too. And, uh, and you do that. It seems to me like a lot. Sometimes you're raising up your arms almost like in praise. Yeah. So you've got one that's about people flying and you're doing wings and yeah. you're, you're having people getting handcuffed and putting their hands behind their backs. And, you were doing that right now uh, when you were reciting this one. You had some air quotes and yeah. you had some, you know, there was, there's a, uh, there's, there's physical movement of the body that yeah. goes along with it. And it seems like that's, that's a part of the art form, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's what people see visually. It's what they hear sonically, right? Um, so that the intonation also kind of lends into the power of the work and the emotion of the work. But then the third thing is a little bit more abstract. And the third thing is the energy, the energy in the room matters a lot to how the poem is received. Another thing that's going on with that poem in particular is you're talking about Charlotte and you're talking about gentrification, uh, which is a thing that doesn't just happen in Charlotte, but it does happen in Charlotte, yeah. right? And you're, and you're talking about uh, a subject that is, and you're talking about places that are known to uh, people who live in Charlotte and who have been around Charlotte and know what's going on in Charlotte you are presently the poet laureate of the city of Charlotte. And I wonder, I'm, I'm curious how that came to be, you know, c congratulations. Thank you. Uh, it's cool. I, I, I think it's cool that Charlotte has a poet laureate. I think it's really cool that it's you. I'm interested in how that came to be and sort of what that entails and how that uh, designation or that title or that role, uh, that space that you're filling informs the work that you're doing you know, while you hold that position. It was an application process. And then from those that applied, there was a, the independent arts committee made up of local arts uh, members and organizations went through um, the selection criteria and selected a top five. And then from those finalists, uh, I was selected from that. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But also the thing I'm most happy about is that Charlotte has a poet laureate now. Um, and the most common question I get is, what is a poet laureate? And, and I don't think the definition, I don't think there's a real definition like on hand for it. And I think that each city or state or whatever region, you know, can define the role how they want to. 
I see it as a, a ambassador of poetry for the city. So an ambassador for, for poetry, both uh, the oral tradition and the written tradition, um, an ambassador for literacy. And I think specifically in a city, as opposed to a state or, or, uh, or the country, I think in a city specifically, uh, the role of the Poet Laureate is to make sure that poetry is thriving. One thing that was really on my radar was we have a ton of poets in this city and, and they're all so amazing. And I do not want to duplicate any work <laughs> that people are already doing. Like if there's poets or organizations that are just, you know, organizing great events and doing all these things and open up, opening, opening up these spaces, which they are, there's no need for me to do that thing because they're doing it. I can amplify what they're doing. I can draw more attention to what they're doing. Maybe, maybe I can even connect them with funders so that they can do it on a bigger level. All of that frees me up to do things that aren't being done. Right. I can I can look for things that aren't being done and, and try to build those things up. Charlotte is a little bit of a hotbed of spoken word poetry. Oh, yeah. for sure. Um, you became a part of Charlotte Slam, which is uh, a group of poets and performers who are very well known, uh, at least around the U.S. Yeah. And um, and there are in this form of art. Uh, some of the best people that there are are right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yep. Uh, how did you get linked up with those folks and how do you all uh, support each other in doing what you do? Back in um, 2009, I self-published a, a, a book of poetry. In 2010, I went to a book festival at the uh, what used to be the Bojangles kind of Coliseum. Um, and at that book festival, I met Danny Cook who was a poet here. Uh, she moved, um, has moved since then. And I met blues. And of course everybody knows blues. Um, in talking to them, they are like, Hey, you need to come out to this open mic spot. Like you, you need to come check it out. And in my mind, I was saying, okay, these are, these are performance poets and spoken word poets. I wouldn't dare call myself that only because I was not good at it. So I didn't want to insult them by calling myself one. But I, in my mind, I was, I was saying, you know, by going to these open mic spots, I can learn from them. I can watch them and learn how to read my, my work with more confidence. And that'll help me perform and it'll help me read. I found out that, that by going there on a regular basis, I did learn a lot about performing and I did learn a lot about, you know, being confident with my work. But I learned so much more about writing. There's an interesting uh, aspect of competition that goes with it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, um, unlike some other forms of art, uh, there's a competitive aspect baked into poetry slams. And in a way, it's like, it's sort of how you make your mark. If you go to Wikipedia, you know, you can find your name and you can find Charlotte <laughs> Slam. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. but it's it's there and that's how you know. And when you get introduced, I'm less interested in the accolades and the honors associated with that than I am in the the fire of the spark of creativity that competition can create. So two answers to that question. And the first one is, um, I, I think I've always been in competition with myself. I think I always am and probably always will be. Um, so, so during the heyday of some, some just championship poets slam wise that were in the city, a lot of them would tell me I, I was good. They would say, Oh man, you should, you should slam. You should, like you're, you're good. You're good. Um, and I did a poem and I, perfor I, I performed it and, and people was like, that poem was good. That poem was good. And I went on my way home, I was driving and I, which is when I do my best thinking and I was just kind of reviewing it. And I said to myself, why is good good enough for me? That's when I really started revising more. I think prior to that, I probably did maybe one or two revisions on something that I wrote. And I just said, I looked around the room um, and, you know, Ed Mabry's in the room, multiple individual world poetry slam champion, uh, JC's in the room, Blues is in the room, 20's in the room. All these people are in, Maze is in the room. All these people whose work I admire, who, who I know, who I know without a doubt would destroy me in a poetry slam, right? I just asked myself, why is, why is good good enough? I went back and I revised that poem probably five or six more times before I even let anybody hear it again. The Poetry Slam community is absolutely one, for me anyway, that has been really encouraging. And at the same time, they're not going to let you win anything. <laughs> Being in that, in that environment has also pushed me 
to say, what, what can this poem do? I want, I want each poem to create a moment in time. I want it to create a moment that makes you forget whoever the poet was before me, at least in a slam setting, not in the open mic setting, but in a slam setting, can this poem become so involved? Can, can I compel you so much that you have now forgotten the poets that were before me? You are, you are entrenched in what I am doing and you have forgotten what they're doing. And you've forgotten the fact that somebody's coming after me. You are just in this moment. You've got two books. Yes. I've got a, I got a micro chat book through Bull City Press. Does that sing me a lesser wound? That's sing me a lesser wound. Now it's out. That's out. You got one coming. I got one coming. Called Composition. Yes. That's a full length book that was supposed to drop this fall, but it's been pushed back to February 3rd. You're, are you still revising? Is that what's happening? No, no, here? no, no. <laughs> Although I will say I, I spent, I probably since I spent six months revising that work before I let them, like they agreed to publish it. Right. And I said, give me six months to revise it. And then I gave it to them. Then I went and did a, um, I did a, uh, uh, a manuscript coaching class with Tayamba Jess. And then <laughs> I, I, I contacted the publisher and I said, I need another six months. I'm going to, I'm going to rework this again. And then after I reworked it, it's a lot of visual work. Okay. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot of graphics and photos and visual work, uh, because I wanted to create something that lived on the page the way I try to make things live on the stage. And it was a little bit, it was a little bit complicated for the publisher to fulfill it. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Uh, the publisher is button poetry and I'm very grateful, because uh, because I'm taking a lot of risks in this book uh, and I'm very grateful that they never pushed back. They never said no. Um, once I gave them the final work, they just came back and said, we, we probably need a little bit more time to uh, to fulfill this just because it's it's not going to be a standard size and the amount of graphics in it is also not standard. So the pushback was purely to give them enough time to to release it the right way. But it is done. I'm not revising it anymore. Would you say that that represents kind of where you are right now, or is that a snapshot and you've already moved past and you're, you're doing different stuff already? That's what that project was. And, and I'm in a completely different direction now. What's the direction now? In my mind, one of my projects is, um, I'm going to sit down and lock myself in a room for a while with, with some jazz. Um, and really see how that speaks to me, specifically Coltrane, who was raised for the most part in North Carolina. Uh, and then uh, all of his formative career was in uh, Philly, I believe. So in my mind, I would love to see what that looks like to spend a lot of time with Coltrane and figure out how those influences would would come across rhythmically. Do you already love Coltrane or are you? Oh yeah. Are you, okay. All yeah. right. Listen, you, you might choose to try to love someone new by, by that sort maybe, of immersion. Yeah, right. Yeah. But okay. So you've, you've already, um, you already know sort of what you're getting into and you'd like to, have you done that before? Have you done something like that before as part of your process, like intentionally creating a situation for yourself and intentionally kind of cramming in, uh, an external influence? Yeah. Not as broadly as what I'm, what I think I'm going to do with Coltrane, but really uh, every every performance piece I have, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to teach. I spend hours and hours and probably weeks just collecting data and information, um, so that I have all this periphery right to work with. So even if I'm not going to use ninety five percent of this stuff, it's still informing me. It's still informing the process. Understanding that it's a work in progress, it's going to take on a life of its own, it's going to become whatever it becomes, uh, regardless of how you imagine it right now. Do you have a sense of how you want to speak in this Coltrane immersion? Like, are there is are there thematic elements or subject matters that you want to sort of cover? Or are you just going to go into this and just, or, or is it more of like a rhythmic thing? Is it, or is it, are you thinking about a personal experience or have you even gotten to that point? Or are you just going to go in there like a, like a jazz musician and improvise the thing and just let it go wherever it's going to go? Yeah, definitely improvise. Uh, I'm, I don't have a solid idea. Like in my mind, I thought maybe I would write from the standpoint of Coltrane. Maybe I would do enough research to, to write about his life. But I think what's going to happen is because back when I did used to write rap songs and record rap songs and all that, 
I would just listen to the instrumental for like an hour. Uh, and at some point I would get, there, there'd be a tone that would come to me. There'd be an idea, there'd be words that came to me. And, and then I would start writing the song. And in my mind, I think that's what's going to happen here. I think I'm just going to lock myself in a room with Coltrane and, and see what comes out, you know? You ever going to do any more rapping? So, you know, occasionally uh, I have a, I have a podcast with with blues and Jamal, who's another poet. Uh, What's it called? Poet Up. Poet Up podcast, which is Poet Up, but also we drink during the show. So it's Poet Up. <laughs> poet Up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So tell me about that. First of all, everyone go download Poet Up. It's hilarious. And you guys, uh, you get together, you have some drinks and. Yeah, we have we have guests. Um, most mostly poets, but other creatives uh, from around the city and around the country as well. And um, as Blues likes to say, uh, we're all drinking. So about twenty seven minutes in, right? Things get things get uh, a little unpredictable. And then at the end, uh, like once we're finished with the with the interview, we surprise our guests if they haven't listened to the show before uh, by playing an instrumental, and everybody has to freestyle rap. Oh my gosh! <laughs> while 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 having been oh, drinking the whole time, okay. did they have to freestyle rap? See, so does the guest go first or does the guest go last? No. So the way we do it is blues goes first. Yeah. I go, yeah. then the guest goes and then Jamal f- f- uh, closes out because um, I think that's a unique position. They don't have to go first or last. So, yeah, yeah, so there's yeah, no yeah. pressure there. Uh, blues is actually really good at freestyling. Okay. I am intermediate so sometimes i'm okay and sometimes it's really bad yeah i think that creates the least amount of pressure for the guest right and then jamal will tell you himself like he, he's not a freestyle rapper so so his his raps are very short and and not generally it's good for him to go last too because he can figure right. it out right <laughs> right and also like yeah. if 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 the, if the guest feels self-conscious about what they just did yeah jamal will make them feel better right right <laughs> at, at no, that's end. really good yeah. I, I saw a documentary about freestyle one time and somebody made a point i don't know if I, if you agree with this it, it, this guy whoever it was said that there are people who are really really good at freestyle and then there's people who are really good at composed rhymes and yeah. usually one does not translate to the other this guy's position was that you're either kind of one or the other do you think that's true i think i think generally that's true i don't think i mean it's it's very it's very few statements that are like 100 yeah right of course yeah generally yeah i think that's true you know uh snoop dogg nobody ever is going to say that snoop dogg is one of the best lyricists in rap like he's a he's a good rapper nobody's gonna say he's the best lyricist right however i don't know if you've ever heard snoop freestyle but, no, I but Snoop, Snoop can freestyle for 10, 20 He's minutes. He's incredible. I, I think this guy was talking about Nas. I think he was talking about how great Nas is. And yeah, I don't think saying, Nas can't freestyle. That's what he was saying. He was saying Nas is not a super great freestyler, but you know, obviously his his songs are some of yeah. the best ever. Right? The, the exception to that rule would be Black Thought from yeah. The Roots. Black Thought is one of the best lyrical rappers of all time and is one of the best freestylers I've ever heard. Yeah. I think Eminem also is a really good freestyler. Yeah, I think so too. There's a guy, um, I don't know any of this guy's music. It's King Los. Are you familiar mm. with him? I am. Um, he's um, about once a year, I'll just search um, Sway freestyle, Sway yeah. in the morning mm-hmm. uh, freestyle. And because I just, he, as you probably know, he's a radio host and he has rappers on his guests and yeah. he, he kind of always makes everybody freestyle. And, and a lot of people kind of cheat, like they go in there and they, they have something pre-written. They definitely do. And yeah. he doesn't always know. Sometimes they, they fool him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. but, um, but there's ways of differentiating. And one of the, way, one of the things that they'll do with people who are really good is they'll, they'll throw out words like they'll make it impossible to bluff it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they'll, they while, so there's King Los is to my way, it's the best one I've seen yet. Like I would, mm. I'd love to, we can, we can continue this conversation yeah. at some point, but he is on there and Sway is just throwing out word after word after word. And he's just picking it up and going with it. And it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. I, I have no capability of doing that. I never did. Even as a player, as a musician, I, I was not good at jazz because of that improvisational aspect. You know, we have to have you on the show. And, oh and, no, no, oh no, yeah, no. we're gonna have you on the show. Absolutely and not. <laughs> I, let me, I'm I'm gonna rank up the t- I'm gonna rank up the titian. So 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 you know Matt Matt Olin and Tim Miner. Yes, they were on the show. And okay, they, and they rapped. Well, so now I, it's, all right, it's Steve yeah. Dunn's turn. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. Actually, that makes me feel better uh, about 
how the the level that might be expected. Now, I have no idea about those guys' abilities because I know from Sway, every now and then somebody will surprise you. Yeah, somebody came on there, Shia LaBeouf. The oh yeah, I've seen hot, that one. He was pretty good, man. As yeah. a, as a freestyle rapper, he's not bad. I mean, yeah. I'm saying everything is about expectations compared to what I thought it was going to be. He yeah, was surprisingly good. Um, I don't even know how we talked. Oh, we were talking about um whether you're going to do any more rapping because it's not so far afield from what you do in terms of your performance pieces. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's it's not that different, and there could be a way uh, of blending them together. It's really no different from just adding a music track to yeah. sort of what you're already doing. I mean, do you think about that? I mean, I've, I've always considered rap to be, to be poetry. Yeah. I mean, uh, supposedly the acronym is rhythmic American poetry, but, hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's poetry. It's, I mean, it's basically a sonnet. 16 bars is same thing as a sonnet with, with two extra lines. Who do you, um, who do you love both in terms of the, the musical track that like you would listen to for an hour? Cause there's a wide range of those. There's some great rap records out there where the musical track is very simple and basic. Right. Yeah. But then there's some rap records out there where the music underneath it is like, like really compelling in its own right. Like what do you love in terms of, uh, both, both lyricists and, uh, rappers, but also, uh, in terms of the music behind it. Hmm. I mean, lyrically, um, most deaf, uh, Talib Kweli, Jay-Z, Rakim, Black Thought, Nas, Andre 3000. That's lyrically. Uh, and, and their songs, too. Um, so musically, I think what I'm thinking right now is is Kendrick. I'm, I'm, thinking, yeah. I'm thinking a lot about the artistic choices. Even with this last album, which I'm, I'm, you know, a, a lot of people have things to say about certain songs on on that album, um, but even with that album, like I can see him trying to push. I, I can see him trying to do something new. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think every album is either a concept like Good Kid, Mad City, or How to Pimp a Butterfly, or or like Damn was completely a concept album. Um, but I'm seeing I'm seeing the poetry in it. I'm seeing the push. I'm seeing the creative. Uh, innovation. Uh, I'm I'm listening to Damn and saying this is a palindrome, <laughs> like like somebody created an album that's a palindrome. Um, so th- there's other artists too, but right now I think the one I'm thinking of is Kendrick. I've not just with respect to hip hop and rap music, but with respect to music in general, I'm finding it hard. And I don't know if it's because of my age. Mm-hmm. I'm finding it hard to. I really have to make a conscious effort to keep trying to take in new things, and. I'm finding it hard. Like yeah. I'm, I'm finding it hard to get passionate about new things. Did, so I don't know if this is true of you or anybody else, but when I was, when I was a kid, I always wondered what, what was the age or what was the moment? What's the cutoff? Because, yeah. cause I would listen to my dad and right. you know, my dad would oh, be like, yeah. I can't listen to today's music. I never want to be, get I don't want to be lawn. that guy. You know what I mean? Right. I'm trying hard not to be that guy, but at the same time, and it, it <laughs> I keep trying, but but I know what they mean because no, no, I'm, no. I'm making a conscious effort and I'm still finding it hard. Yeah, and that's what I mean too. I think a few, even even as recently as a few years ago, I was pretty, I was pretty involved in trying to make sure to keep up with the new music and this is what I like and this is what I don't like. And I think over the last couple of years, uh, so in the mid 40s, I'm I'm like, it's not that I don't, it's not that I don't like it or I'm not, I'm not open to it. I just don't have much interest in listening to the radio anymore. Yeah. And if you don't listen to the radio, then you have to purposely seek it out on the internet. And I'm not going to do that more than likely. So now my media exchange is limited to what's, what's on a movie soundtrack or what's on a, you know, what's showing up on TV. So my, my exposure to what's new is a lot, lot less. And I, and I'm starting to think that maybe that's the, like, that's the point that I was wondering about when I was a kid, like when would be the point that I'm not interested in the new stuff anymore? For me, it's uh, it's been a while since I heard something that hit me like a bolt of lightning. It's mm. been a while since I heard something that struck me as totally unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Mm. And not that that's necessarily always good. In fact, it's not. I, I roll the dice on a lot of stuff 
high risk, high reward. I love going to see like really weird performances that a lot of them are really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or when I say terrible, not that they're poorly done. It, they just don't resonate with me. You know, yeah. like I'm, I'm, I, I take a chance on a lot of things and every once in a while, you know, you, you get really lucky and you, you get your mind blown and things change. So whenever I, I go on long trips, you know, I'm, I'm blasting music, I'm singing along to it and I, and I'm, you know, taking these trips down memory lane. And I remember listening to, um, to like Jodeci and Joe and, and some of these like uh, guy, you know, these R and B groups. And I remember very clearly that my dad was like, this is not, my dad would be like, this is not music and their lyrics don't, don't make any sense. And in my day, the lyrics were so much better. And as a teenager, I was just like, you're, you know, you're hating, you're, you're, you're hating on this as an adult going back. I can maintain the nostalgic moments of those songs and I can maintain, maintain that these were good songs. Like these, 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 these songs sound good. However, you're also right. The lyrics were not good. I was, I was listening to the Jodeci album and I was like, I love this album. But when I actually listened to the lyrics, these lyrics aren't that good. Um, so when I, when I listened to, uh, so the other day I was listening to um, Swim Good by Frank Ocean and just listening to it poetically, I was like, man, the first, the first, um, the first verse into the chorus of Swim Good is astonishing. From a lyrical, from a lyrical, from, from like a poetic standpoint, it's not that it's overly complicated. It's just that the imagery that's, that's created going into the chorus and then how the music interplays with that and kind of manip manipulates your emotions. It's, it's so good. Now, I say all that to say, I, I think as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm starting to appreciate lyrics more, but I'm also appreciating, appreciating that like when the young kids listen to this hip hop that I clearly with, 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 with an overall breadth that is longer than theirs of, of listening to hip hop music, I clearly hear it as derivative of everything that's come before it, but I can understand how they would listen to it, feel like it's new, create their own nostalgic memories connected to the totally. song yeah right and and and, and well it connects it. with the time of life that you're in as well you yeah know? yeah the things that you're going through as you're taking it in i think the age that you are and the things that you're going through it all matters um yeah and, and so like my daughter plays something for me that i think sounds like green day and i tell her she ought to listen to green day i mean green day is like 35 years old now you know what yeah. i mean like they're they're ancient history to her even if the music is very similar she it need what's going on now needs to be going on now you know yeah it's interesting that you mentioned frank ocean because that is an artist who comes up a lot in in as one of the favorites of like people who are into a lot of different kind of stuff you know yeah. what i mean i see uh fans of widely disparate types of music all really like frank ocean a lot you know yeah. so i need to i'm gonna check out the one that you mentioned and check him out more generally um, I, have you have you seen a group poem before? Have you seen uh, multiple people in one poem? I don't think so. Group? No. So so that is a thing, particularly in competition, um, where you know three four people will do a poem together. So you have you know this voice and this voice and this voice and then all together and then one and then all together and you same thing happening with the movement. So it's like there's there's the orchestra happening with this group piece. Um, probably about four years ago, I started writing my poems as if they were group pieces, meaning I started writing my poems with multiple voices, even though I'm going to be doing the voices. I felt like that added some texture. It added some, you know, some diversity to, to the sonic nature of the poem, which, again, I think, you know, compels people more, um, at least at least for me. Uh, I, not all poets do it and not all poets need to do it. But for me, I'm kind of looking at, you know, orchestrating these different voices and these different things so that the poem has, has texture. Well, you know what it can also do is open up the opportunity for you to explore perspectives and points of view that are not your own, mm -hmm. uh, in a, to tell the different kinds of truths, really to separate yourself from your own identity and your own life experience in a way you do a lot of teaching work you teach through your own creative work but you also uh work with young people uh mm -hmm. developing their own voices uh, brave new voices is a festival and competition that is international that's held in a different place each year and hosted by youth speaks 
uh, organization out of uh, San Francisco. I think they're based out of, um, and it's it's five, you know, five students age thirteen to nineteen. They may or may not know each other uh, beforehand, uh, but once that team is formed, we work with them several hours a day, three to four times a week on getting their writing as good as it can be and then getting their performances as good as it can be. Uh, Also working on like the best way to tell their story without hurting themselves. You know, Uh, these youth, not just in Charlotte, but, but around the country, these youth have incredible stories to tell. And part of it is the talent. Like part of it is they just have a unique talent at an early age to be able to convey these things. And the other part of it is some of them have some really tragic stories to talk about. Um, it can be very cathartic and helpful to talk about them, but we never ever want them to feel like they have to do that to get a score or to get some kind of accolade. So sometimes it's working with them to tell a story that they need to tell, knowing that we're not going to let them put it on the stage unless they, unless they really want to. If we feel like it, and we've had situations where they're willing to, but in our estimation, it's hurting them more than it's helping them. And we just say, don't, don't do that poem. It's not worth, it's not worth the accolades. It's not worth the high score. If it hurts you to do the poem, um, writing poetry should help, should be cathartic. How's that for you as an artist, as a writer, how do you confront the subjects where it's unclear as you're starting whether it's going to help you or hurt you. I, I, I haven't, I'm probably privileged in that way that I, I haven't had anything that I've written hurt me um, in a negative way. I've, I think the most cathartic thing I've ever written was about my dad's passing and like my own feelings of guilt. Cause you weren't there. Cause I wasn't there. Yeah. I, this is also on your website. That's on the website. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that particular poem, um, I think it hurt, a little bit to write it and, and it hurt to perform it, but not in a negative way, not in a way that, that I felt like I was going to spiral or I wasn't going to come back. It felt really freeing. It, it, yeah. It helped. Yeah. It, it helped me to, to get it off my chest. Yeah. And it helped me that people afterwards were like, I felt the same way. Like, you know, forgive yourself. You know, I've, I've, I, the same thing happened to me. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, but it, you know, I stopped performing that poem also. Like I, 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 after that recording, I don't think I did that poem again for two years. You want to do another one? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll read one. <clears throat> Homecoming, Rich Square, North Carolina. One. Northern black folk drive through my hometown and stop along the road to pick cotton, a drifted piece. Something the machine skipped over. Feel the need to connect. Honor ancestors by picking straight from the claw of the plant's mouth, seed and all. How thorny it feels. How it calls out blood like the Big Dipper sang a whole bloodline toward a lesser wound. How can anyone do this all day? I worked that field as a kid. Only once. Burlap skin like thirsty hands during an annual event for families in need of extra income. Come, the cotton gin called. Mighty fine job, sang Jackson Street from its own crescent mouth. How callous these hands and strong this back, I dreamed. Tan this skin, eager this frame. A man, a man, a bag of white gold, taller than my dusty afro, earned $8.58. A check that arrived two weeks later. Hell no, I never went back. Two. My mother-in-law had never seen a cotton field up close. This visit, she threw open the door before I even got to a good stop, went elbow deep, and picked one tuft, clean and good. Nervous, the landowner might see her working his soil and pick up a shotgun. Noticed the blood on her fingers, rubbed them pink, and was quiet the rest of the way home. Do you think about what the future holds in terms of your creativity and do you wonder or or have a notion of what you may explore creatively as you get older? No, 
I'm just trying to kind of let life happen and, and figure out what that moves because the, the older I get might make me re-examine childhood memories more. So I might, you know, I might be writing about those things or as I start to, you know, uh, encounter different difficulties and, and different things as an older person, maybe that might make me write about those things. I'm not sure. Or, or Coltrane might reign the rest of my life and I might just be writing jazz rhythms for the next Coltrane's going to do something, right? Yeah, when yeah. are you going to do it? When are you locking yourself in the room? I'm not sure. I was, I was going to do it last year. I, I applied for a residency and my idea was I was going to use that residency and just put a record player in, in the room because the residency came with a room and just play and just write on the walls and just come up with the stuff. Um, and I didn't get accepted to that residency and I didn't hold myself accountable afterwards to, to do it. So the earliest it would be is next year. This year's, this year's pretty busy and it might not even be next year just because the plans that I have for the laureateship and the things that I'm already doing now, uh, I'm really, really more focused on uplifting, uh, other people than to, to focusing on my own work. So I, I would, I doubt very seriously it'll be this year. It might be next year. And then for sure, if it's not, if it's not 2023, it'd be 2024. Do you have a concept in mind of how long it's going to take? Like are you, you can do this for a week. You can do this for three months or have you even gotten to that point? No, however long it takes. And, yeah. You know, in, in my mind, the original project was going to be one long poem, but broken up so that it could be read as individual poems but also written so that it could just continue on and it could just be one longer poem. Well, Jay Ward, I have very much enjoyed this conversation and I can't thank you enough for coming and being with me on the Steve Dunn podcast. Thanks so much for having me.